Rick Betterly is the president of Betterly Risk Consultants, which is a national risk management consulting firm that was founded in 1932 by his grandfather. Uh, He has been a consultant since 1975 and president of the firm since 1984. Betterly Risk Consultants is located in Sterling, Massachusetts, and Rick is the publisher of the Betterly Report, which is a market survey series of insurance product analysis and reports. Please welcome to our program, Rick Betterly. Thank you for dialing in this morning, and uh, tell me a little bit about uh, uh, what you do uh, now. Uh, what's the nature of your uh, your business? So, Betterly Risk Consultants is an independent risk management consulting firm that was started in 1932 by my grandfather, and the idea with the firm was that the corporate buyer of commercial property and casualty insurance should have somebody that they could go to for expertise on exposures, coverage, risk management strategies, uh, who was not uh, selling insurance policies. And we have great respect for the um, commercial insurance agency system and, and brokers and work very happily with them. But his idea was that there ought to be an availability of expertise, much like in the audit world, where somebody was from the outside looking with new, fresh eyes. That was the, the, the sort of genesis of the business. He was a risk manager before they were called risk managers and was quite well known. The company's evolved quite a bit since then. We still do traditional insurance risk consulting, and we, we're glad to do it. But most of our work these days is related to either alternative risk, like captive insurance companies, especially group captives and risk retention groups, and a certain amount of product development, market research, and strategy for insurance companies and risk service providers. Yeah. It's sort of an interesting twist on the business. Yeah, and I noticed you mentioned uh, to me earlier that it was your grandfather who started the business. Now, you know, we're here to talking today about cybersecurity, and uh, cyber, there was no such thing as cybersecurity back in 32, 1932, when he founded the business. What was the risk that... Uh, that he was advising uh, uh, companies on back then. Remarkably similar to what we look at now. Of course, there's a lot more zeros attached to the things we look at now, but property was a, a bigger part of the exposures he was concerned with and workers' compensation. Those are still huge factors for our clients, but they are probably better controlled and managed now than they were back then. So most of what I spend my time with is liability type of coverages, it seems, and cyber is an overwhelmingly large percentage of the work that I do now. And, um, fortunately, I got a grasp on cyber risk back in 2000 and started writing about it. So it makes me, um, I hate to admit it, sort of a, a bit of a grand old man in the business of cyber insurance. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's obviously emerged uh, rather quickly. It's uh, probably... Uh, in 2000, uh, uh, you know, were there really any articles or anybody focusing on that uh, that niche? Not much. Um, the first cyber insurance policy is believed to have been written in 1998. I think it was by AIG. And we started writing about it in the Betterly Report uh, in 2000. And back then we called it the e-commerce market survey. It's now the cyber privacy insurance market survey. And... 
for the first five years, I believe it was, of that report, we didn't even mention the word breach response. And now breach response is a major, major part of the insurance policy that we call cyber or network security. So there, there was, you know, not much being written. Uh, we just had this idea that it was going to be a real important insurance product and our readers needed to understand it. And um, happy we did. Yeah, what are some of the, the biggest challenges you face in putting together? I understand you put together the Betterly Report, and that's uh, out on a uh, semi-annual basis. And uh, uh, what's the biggest challenges you face in trying to gather the data and the information uh, uh, that you uh, you then communicate to your customers? Well, uh, before I do, a quick correction. We actually publish every other month, and so there are six different reports per year. So what are the biggest challenges? I think the biggest challenge is trying to provide the right information, enough of the information, but in a way that it's usable and actionable by the insurance agents, brokers, and risk managers who are the primary readers. Uh, Our idea with the Betterly Report is to provide primarily the non-global insurance broker with kind of research about specialty insurance products. And for that, we need to be able to get enough information in detail about those individual products so that the broker can tease out uh, which of those products is the right one for a particular insured. And, and so, you know, in the day, now that we're electronic publishers, right, um, we have effectively unlimited pages, but the reader doesn't have time for unlimited pages, so I have to figure out what's important, and I think that's probably one of the biggest values of the Betterly Report. Yeah, you need I mean, to know, and, uh, and, and what is it that you're going to know. Yeah, I noticed that you have uh, six reports. Uh, 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 why those particular six? Uh, and uh, 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 the uh, uh, cyber, and I noticed uh, the first was cyber and privacy risk. Uh, the second, technology risk. Uh, the third, employment practices liability. Uh, the fourth, uh, private company management liability. Uh, the fifth, uh, D&O liability, side A. Uh, and then the sixth, uh, intellectual property and media liability. Are those the, the six general areas that, that exist in the marketplace, or are those just the six that you, uh, you specialize in? write about. Our, our criteria go something like this. Um, it needs to be an insurance product that is going to be widely enough um, purchased that enough of our readers will find value in us writing about it. It's all well and good for me to write about something I'm interested in, but if the reader isn't going to encounter it very often, there's not much point in us writing about it. Um, the second is it needs to be a product that is very much non-standard. In other words, lots of variation between the different insurance policies that are put out by the 20 or 30 insurance companies participating in each survey. If they're all selling the same thing, there's not much value to the reader. And frankly, the the third one is that it has to be something that we think, you know, kind of the coming thing, where the reader wouldn't say, you know, listen, I, I know all about that kind of insurance. I don't really need to learn much more about it. I want it to be something where the uh, the broker who's reading it would say, I really need to understand this type of insurance better to properly serve my customer. That's that's our reader. That's who we want to appeal to. Yeah. I noticed on uh, surveying some of your blogs uh, that you had mentioned uh, a concept called what you called or referred to as cyber insurance 3.0. Uh, what's that about? 
you know, one of my favorite topics with cyber. So if you think about highly protected risk approach in the, in the property insurance business or managed workers' compensation, the idea that we will go to great lengths to keep from having a claim and that the insurance policy will provide a lot of support to the insured to prevent a claim in the first place, and if they do have a claim to moderate or mitigate uh, how large that claim is, that applies significantly to cyber insurance. Um, one of the problems for the small to mid-size enterprise insured is that there are there's a constant stream of offers from various cybersecurity providers, and they can't tell which ones are the valuable ones and which ones maybe are more headline and less less meat. So we think that the insurance industry has a very significant role to play in helping provide cybersecurity protection and insurance to the insureds, and that the uh, term we've, we've used for that is Cyber 3.0, the next evolution of cyber insurance. Lots of uh, risk avoidance, lots of post-claim services, spend more money on not having a claim and less money on claims is the right way to go with cyber insurance. We think we're right, and that's definitely the way the, the insurance products are evolving. Yeah. Now, cyber uh, policies, uh, what uh, maybe give us a little more uh, texture to it. Uh, what are some of the basic coverages of a cyber policy? insurance policy, sometimes called network security, sometimes called privacy, but generally referred to as cyber, consists of a number of different parts. The, the core would be a liability component in which the, we have traditional claims made type of insurance for an insured who has data that was supposed to be held private and which was inadvertently uh, released into the public, whether it was because a hacker um, came into a system and grabbed the information and distributed it, or because the, the holder of the information, say an employee, made a simple mistake, you know, lost a laptop, um, put information on their uh, personal computer at home, somehow or other got information like social security number, credit card, date of birth, address, things that would allow a holder of the information to go out and say, take out a credit card in your name. So that's a liability, and it's claims made uh, with defense within the limit, and that's the core of the policy. Up until a few years ago, the liability component didn't have that much claims activity against it, but that's been changing the last couple of years, mostly post-target uh, stores uh, breach. The, a subpart to that portion of the policy, in other words, a sublimit, is the breach response coverage, which would pay the cost to the data holder of responding to the breach by notifying the affected person, possibly providing credit monitoring, providing legal counsel, um, working with uh, regulators such as attorneys general who may be investigating the breach, et cetera. So that's the breach response portion, almost always subject to a sublimit. It's the most critical part for most insureds. Um, yeah. There's also some, often not found in every policy, but sometimes optionally in some of the policies, 
for example, cyber extortion. Uh, a cyber um, hacker uh, notifies you that they've shut down your website or they will shut down your website or dis disable your email server if you don't pay them X number of dollars. So that's cyber extortion. Think of it as a lot like kidnap and ransom coverage. Um, there's uh, a media type of public relations type of coverage. This goes to um, have a publicity campaign that, yes, we we have released data by mistake. We wished it hadn't happened. We still love you all, our customers and the community, and here's why we're still a good company to do business with. And that's a, a sort of a crisis response type of coverage, again, subject to a supplement. There are some, sometimes some property coverages, for example, damage to data or business interruption. Uh, those are less frequently bought, but important and available. And, uh, you know, there's a, a few other sort of here and there kind of coverages that pop up, but those are really the, the yeah. core parts of the cyber policy. You know, we, we hear in the news, uh, of course, uh, the big stores, the targets and the large banks, uh, and even government sometimes have had their computer systems hacked or breached. Uh, is this a cyber risk? Is it, is it a concern not just for the big companies, but also for the smaller businesses up and down Main Street? Um, if it's not, it certainly should be. We, we have a phrase in the cybersecurity world that there are two types of organizations, those who have been hacked and know it, and those that have been hacked and don't know it yet. Uh, you, you cannot assume as a small or middle-sized organization that you won't be hacked or that you're not a target of hackers. The unfortunate reality is that although all size organizations get hacked and that the cybersecurity of even large organizations isn't foolproof, that generally the standards of security for smaller organizations are going to be less, the defenses will be less effective, and, and yet those small organizations are often connected to large organizations. Uh, the best example has always been that the breach of the Target Stores uh, network started with one of their vendors who was a 120-employee uh, HVAC contractor who had um, access to the network of the Target organization. That's Target with a capital T. And the um, idea was to uh, breach the small company so that you can swim upstream and get into the network of the large company, it works. Interesting. So, yeah, so just because you're a small company doesn't mean you're not a target. And you f will probably find, uh, if not now, soon, that businesses that you have relationships with may well be putting liability on you through service agreements and even requiring you to buy cybersecurity insurance policies to back up those agreements, even if you're a small organization. So we think that almost all organizations are going to be, um, in some fashion, needing cyber insurance and quite likely buying cyber insurance. So it'll never be 100%. Yeah. But we think the market penetration will be extremely high. Well, it's uh, with that kind of growth, uh, obviously there must be more insurance companies that are focusing on this and uh, have policies available, aren't there? Uh, is that a growing uh, market for, for new entrants into the marketplace? Uh, very much it is, yes. The, um, one of the few real good growth opportunities for commercial PNC carriers in the United States, um, I, I should mention cyber is sold outside the United States, but if you think about 
new product growth opportunities, cyber is far and away number one in the United States. So we find that almost all larger specialty-focused or specialty-oriented commercial insurance companies will have a cyber product. Um, some are better than others, as you can imagine. That's partly why we write better reports so we can figure out which ones are the right ones. Um, and, uh, and, and they're not necessarily all focused on the same kind of insured. Most carriers aren't going to be all that interested in a real large insured. They may be focused more on the middle market or small size organizations. So you have 30 plus insurance companies offering their own individual cyber product. Everyone's different and they all have their own focus in terms of target marketplace. So sorting these all out is quite a challenge and it's changing, you know, changes every day. Yeah, it's uh, so I'm guessing uh, companies like to specialize on different markets and uh, stay away from others. Uh, if you were an agent or a broker uh, out there uh, calling on clients, you know, what advice would you give uh, uh, to that agent and broker uh, uh, who's talking to business owners about this issue? It, it's a huge problem. I try to stay in close contact with the folks that are actually out talking with their insureds and their potential insureds and try to make sure I understand what their challenges are. And I, 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 I speak with them and, and, and to them in terms of conferences uh, quite a bit. And the challenges seem to be that the insureds are in complete denial, that they say, it'll never happen to me, uh, we have a good firewall, I'm not a target, I'm just a small company, let me think about it, uh, we don't have it in the budget, we'll talk to me next year. All of, you know, all of the above, right? And that's, those are hard objections to, to punch through. Um, the insureds don't like buying a new kind of insurance policy. Usually, you know, they, they already have their, their core insurance. They don't like the idea of buying yet another insurance policy. So what I suggest to the agents and brokers that they ask the, uh, their clients whether they have business agreements with their customers or possibly their suppliers, which, which put responsibility for them, for the, excuse me, for the protection of the private data on them, the, the insured. In other words, that the smaller organization has some signed agreements that place liability on them from their customers. And, and, and not all will, of course, but many, many, many will. Um, for any organizations that, that's accepting credit cards, and that means not necessarily just retail organizations now, um, they probably have a responsibility to pay what are called PCI or payment card industry um, fines and penalties in the event there there was a breach and the um, the breach involved credit cards, uh, they are vulnerable to fines levied against them by Visa, Mastercard, American Express, etc., um, which which can be covered in uh, to some extent in the insurance policy. So. It's a rare organization that doesn't have at least one of those sort of exposures. Um, the other recommendation I make, well, one of two recommendations I make, one is that the, the headlines are full of information about breaches, almost so many of them that we're probably a bit shell-shocked and tired uh, and our eyes are glazing over because there's yet another breach every day. And 
when you're talking with the client and they say, we don't need it, I'd be real tempted to just look at it and say, really? You know, based on the headlines? I realize that may be potentially a bit confrontational with the insured, but I, I think a real, um, you know, a bit, a bit of a splash of cold water to the face is not a bad idea when thinking about the need for cyber insurance. Yeah. You know, we hear in the course about uh, commercial businesses that have had uh, a breach, but it would seem that uh, governments and uh, nonprofits uh, also have a challenge, don't they, to uh, keep their uh, system secure and and they face the same risk that uh, that uh, private companies would face, uh, don't they? No, they're absolutely right. Their risk is is no different, and oftentimes they don't have the funds to invest in cybersecurity, and so they may be even more vulnerable. So they have uh, every bit as much risk and quite possibly less protection. And we've seen time after time instances of breaches of non non-for-profit organizations, in other words, not-for-profits and uh, governmental sort of organizations. Um, their data is every bit as useful to the hackers as is the data for commercial organizations. Yeah. Now, if you're an agent or broker, um, you know, what kind of exclusions are you seeing in some of these policies that are available that they ought to be uh, aware of or, or concerned about? Well, the one that's really got everybody's attention now and is found in some, but certainly far from all, cyber policies, in fact, it's only a minority of the cyber policies, is an exclusion if the breach resulted from a failure of the insured to maintain adequate security, uh, data security. And that's extremely troubling to us because, that, after all, that really is why you buy the insurance policy and a failure to maintain security standards isn't necessarily intentional and isn't necessarily uh, unavoidable. Um, for an insurance company to say that we'll accept you as an insured on day one, but if you don't maintain the same security standards that you had uh, on day one, sounds logical on the surface. It sounds to me pretty reasonable. You know, it's almost like saying, We'll give you a discount if you have sprinklers. Oh, six months in, you tear up the sprinklers or don't keep them operating. You shouldn't have the benefit of the insurance. Well, the same idea sounds reasonable with cyber, but it's not that simple. For example, um, software is continually being patched for uh, update, security improvements, and, and other reasons. And sometimes those patches interfere with the operation of other kinds of software that a company is using. So a, uh, a, a chief information officer will decide to not apply that patch until they can get their other software uh, sort of lined up to work with that patch. Well, if there's a, a breach and a resulting claim in the meantime, should the insurance policy exclude it? I don't think so. So that's, that's real troubling. Um, other exclusions, you know, kind of the, the not too surprising uh, exclusions for things like intentional acts and criminal uh, criminal acts and things like that, which I, I think are, are certainly reasonable. They're pervasive and um, hard to argue with. I think one thing that is probably not noticed or not, uh, not given enough attention is that cyber insurance doesn't cover all losses that come out of a, a, a cyber breach. Um, it's generally focused 
the coverage is focused on the release of private data, well, there can be a lot more information that is lost in the cyber breach that isn't private information that might, might be useful to competitors, for example, intellectual property. So that troubles us a lot that it's not covered or easily covered. Well, it's, uh, uh, say, before we wrap up, I want to, you know, I'd like to have our listeners know a little more about you. So uh, this business, uh, Betterly uh, Reports, uh, was uh, founded by your grandfather, and I presume your father was involved in the business. Did uh, you grow up in the business? Um, so the company is Betterly Risk Consultants. Once upon a time, it was Betterly Associates. And yes, my grandfather started it. And at the end of World War II, his two sons, uh, my dad, Dell, and my uncle George joined him and built the company into what was arguably the leading independent risk management consultant firm in the world. And uh, I knew very little about it. You know, I was a kid growing up in the 50s and um, had a had a nice uh, middle-class life, and Dad went off to work every day and got on the plane every couple of weeks, and I didn't know too much about it. And I went off to college, and I was going to be a lawyer I decided at the end, uh, when I graduated college, I didn't want to be a lawyer after all. So I looked around and identified the insurance industry as a place that uh, might be willing to employ me and worked in the benefits side of the insurance world for a couple of years. And that didn't work out real well for me. I was uh, a little on the young side, I would suggest. And so I ended up working for a fellow that had a, a little tiny um, personnel consulting business and I, I really liked it. I was only 23 years old. I carried the briefcase to the meetings, and that was kind of my job. And I, I liked the consulting business, and all of a sudden, my, you know, my eyes flew open, and I recalled that my family's business was, was consulting, and I didn't know anything about risk management. And I thought, you know, I wonder if my dad would be interested in employing me. So I went to work with my father, and well, happily he said, yes, you can come to work for me, but, you know, you're not here as my son. You're here as an employee. So on day one, I realized I wasn't going to call him Dad. I was going to be calling him Dell from then on. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it fit like an old shoe. Uh, it was like I was born to do this. And that was um, 42 years ago. Yeah. And uh, it's been uh, just a wonderful ride. I had no idea how exciting this world was and how, how rewarding it was to have the phone ring and, and somebody say, uh, uh, you know, my, my attorney has suggested I call you. And that's just a tremendously rewarding way to go about one's one's work life. Yeah. Well, so tell me about your dad and uh, what were some of the business practices or business philosophy that uh, that he passed along to you, uh, uh, maybe intentionally or maybe just uh, through his uh, through his actions and his his uh, general philosophy. Um, well, you know the the uh, the headline is he was a hell of a guy um, and. And, and my dad, who's you know now deceased, um, knew that if you took did the right thing for the clients, everything else would work out just fine, and that you didn't need to take shortcuts. In fact, you shouldn't take shortcuts. And no matter what, we were going to do what we promised, and then some. And we weren't going to cut any corners. And so I've always followed that philosophy. And the other part of the philosophy is. Uh, and I subscribe to it 100%, is that the other people that are involved in the work that we do, and it might be the insurance broker, it might be the insurance company employees, it might be other advisors, were uh, comparable professionals, equally deserving of our respect, 
Uh, we were not there to take advantage or thrive uh, at their expense. Uh, we were all there together to help better the client. And uh, unfortunately, that's not always the case with consultants, that consultants sometimes think that in order to look good, they have to make other people look bad. We, we just never saw that that was a good way to go about life or business. Yeah. And uh, I was I was awfully glad to learn uh, learn how to go about the business that way. Well, I'm sure he'd be proud uh, that you're carrying it on and uh, and uh, to uh, to the next generation. Well, hey, uh, thank you. It's been a pleasure visiting with you, and look forward to visiting with you again. Uh, uh, have a great day. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate uh, the opportunity. Mm-hmm.